0: Welcome to Recover Strong, a podcast that will transform your recovery from an eating disorder by helping you go from theory to practice to mastery. This is your special time to learn new skills, tools, and get the inspiration you need to recover strong. Let's get started.
1: Good morning, warriors. Time to start your
0: day. Keep your head up, marching on. Don't understand. doing welcome to this podcast my name is jessica flint i'm the founder and ceo of recovery warriors a multimedia resource hub for all things related to eating disorder recovery i personally recovered from an eating disorder and i'm here to inspire you to do the same I believe recovery is not only possible, but it's worth it. That is why Recover Strong exists to help you see and connect to the potential that lies within you to find freedom from an eating disorder. Today, I have Summer In on the show. She is a podcaster and a body image coach who uses her past struggles with fitness and dieting to help others break free from diet culture summer's podcast is called eat the rules (laughs) i love that name just eat the rules shove it (laughs) and it's a show dedicated to empowering you to break free of societal standards body shame, and live a life beyond the scale because we know that your weight is not your worth. And that is a message worth sharing, worth spreading, and Summer does an excellent job with that. In this episode, we'll be covering body image, the anti-diet movement, the language of recovery, and the parallels between dieting and addiction. So much goodness to get into. Welcome to the show, Summer.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Of course. Thank you so much for being here. And, you know, just to start things off, I'm curious to know as a fellow podcaster, how did your inspiration to start your podcast come about?
1: It came because I had been a guest on two different podcasts and I really enjoyed the conversations that we had. And I really enjoyed just speaking about things that I'm passionate about. I think sometimes it's really hard to read passion and tone in blogging. And I was spending a lot of my time writing blogs and I, and, uh, because of all the feedback that I received from being a guest on these other shows, I thought to myself, well, why don't I just create my own show where I can talk about these things and then I can have guests on. And at the time there weren't a lot of podcasts that were really speaking about body image and you know food issues and things like that there weren't a ton of them out there so it was a good opportunity to offer that perspective because the podcast world was so dominated with health and wellness podcasts that were focusing on you know weight and diet culture and all that stuff that i was encouraging people to get away from <laughs> and so that that's why i started it But, uh, that's where it all came from.
0: So I know a lot of your history kind of revolves around, uh, being in the paleo kind of uh, community and everything. How, yeah. So when did that start? When did you start to like really go into paleo and then what was the transition out of it? I'm just kind of curious to see what that process, because I know a lot of our listeners have kind of gone into these certain types of life, lifestyle changes, quote unquote, and, um, you know, Mm. have found it to be challenging.
1: Yeah, I was always a chronic dieter from a young age. I started to really get more interested in dieting because I was, I had really poor body image and I was just fixated on trying to change my body and just really struggled with confidence issues and self worth. And, you know, prior to discovering paleo, I had really Been in like the whole low fat scene and, and, um, really invested all my energy and in eating that kind of way. So paleo wasn't like my first rodeo. It was just the one that really triggered more of an identity. And I would say, um, an obsession than some of the other ways that some of the other tactics and and like rodeos that I had been to before. But it it came about actually funny that you, you know, segue talking about my wet when I got married. So it was around that time, because I had started going to CrossFit. And, you know, CrossFit and paleo are heavily intertwined in that a lot of facilities or like CrossFit itself will sort of gear people towards eating in that specific way in order to quote unquote, like optimize fitness and and health. And so I hadn't even heard about it before that. And when I went into the the CrossFit that I was going to, they kind of had this thing where they're like, you know, here's what you should eat. And I remember thinking, that's crazy. I would never eat that. Like you gotta be kidding me. I would never, you know, give up those foods and whatnot. Anyways, I ended up getting injured two months before my wedding. And at the time, like just I was super body dysmorphic, really poor body image. And like a lot of wedding culture, <laughs> I had bought into this idea that, you know, you've got to look your best, like, quote, unquote, your best, whatever that means, on your wedding day. And so when I got injured, I couldn't, I couldn't work out. And exercise had always been like my coping mechanism. And exercise was actually the thing that I had like a really poor relationship with. Um, And that's when I, you know, I went to my trainer, and I was like, I don't know what to do. You know, I've got my wedding coming up. And he's like, well, you know, you can change what you're eating. And so that was what really what, like, how I got into it. And as I got into it, just became more kind of obsessed with it and and this was around the time when you know like you could go online and really find communities to sort of support whatever views you wanted to be supported like it kind of feeded the disordered relationship with food in my mind and just kind of furthered my obsession with looking a certain way especially being within like a crossfit culture where there is sort of this like Appearance that you associate with it, which is really unfortunate because there's, I still think there's a lot of good things that come out of, can come out of CrossFit if you have a healthy relationship with fitness. Unfortunately, a lot of people go into it wanting to look a certain way. And so that's where I sort of just went down the rabbit hole and it got progressively just more obsessive and to the point that I wanted to really teach other people about it because I thought it was like just something that everyone should do and that, you know, you could just heal every illness and just all this other, just all this other bullshit to be totally honest about it. And so I started my own business. I went back to school to be a nutritionist and I was helping people within that realm. And then it got to the point where I had just taken it way too far in that just, you know, really cutting out, foods and macronutrients that started to damage my health and well-being. And that's when, you know, I kind of had like a, a wake up call moment in that I had gone to seek help because I had amenorrhea and my hormones weren't functioning properly. And, and, you know, had a naturopath really just kind of sit me down and say like, Hey, you know, you're really throwing gasoline on the fire with the way that you're eating and the way that you're working out. And that's contributing to a lot of the issues that you're having here. And you need to stop, you need to start eating more, and you need to start eating more carbohydrates, you need to stop doing CrossFit. And uh, that's when the light bulb went off in me that my issue was really my relationship with my body. My issue was really my self-worth and my body image and food was not going to solve that. And so although it was a difficult period of time to go through, it was one of the biggest gifts because it really allowed me to see the true issues that I was dealing with and to be able to address those in order to come out of the rabbit hole. And so I just started to really see how toxic my relationship with food had been because I was so afraid of certain foods. And I had just bought into this idea that Things were morally good and bad, and it had just instilled this fear of, of weight gain in me. And so to get out of that, I had to really challenge myself and just start eating things again and bring things back into my life. And uh, I slowly did that. And now I, you know, I say to people, I, I eat whatever I want, and it's totally true so you know i of course i still eat a lot of things like vegetables and fruits and not that that's an obligation or that that makes me a better person it's just that i genuinely do like those things it's just no longer an obsession foods are no longer connected to like whether or not they're going to make me smaller and and yeah it's just a sense of of freedom but i had to really kind of step away from that health and fitness identity like step away from that like paleo crossfit identity and discover who i was outside of that that was really a, a huge part of of my my transition and my ability to break free of of living that way which i mean it had been two decades build up to get to that point where i had to just come to terms with with everything and really start looking at what was happening inside my head instead of on my plate.
0: Yeah, I like the phrase you said is no longer an obligation. Cause I think, you know, there's this extreme like, Oh, then if you kind of used to eat this way before it's paleo, like do you have to go to the full other end of the spectrum and avoid anything that was once paleo, but it really is just about seeking, seeking balance.
1: Yeah, for me, it's just about neutralizing foods like everything is neutral, you know, kale and ice cream neutral. (laughs) You know, like you could argue that (laughs) you could argue that kale is unhealthy if you're eating it for punishment, and you're depriving yourself of other nutrients because you think that that's going to be better for you and you're stressed and you're anxious about food when you're eating it. And you could argue that ice cream is healthier if you're, you know, eating it and really enjoying it. And like you're in an emotionally positive state and it's good and you're, and you know that it's abundant and it's not going anywhere. And it's just like a neutral relationship. So to get to a point where I no longer saw things in like boxes of like healthy versus unhealthy and good versus bad. It took a lot of time because I had to undo two decades of brainwashing and get to a point where my body knew that the famine was over, not just a physical famine, but more so a mental famine, like the way that I was thinking about the food. And I would say it even went back longer than two decades because I had grown up in a house where foods were considered good and bad from the moment I understood food. Like from, you know, my mom had just always taken us to weird health food stores and been like, oh, you can't eat that. That's bad. You know, like that was, that had been instilled in me from the time that I was able to understand language and food.
0: And do you still sometimes see that creep back into your thoughts? Like good, bad, or do you have to kind of sit there and kind of explain to yourself, or I don't know, how How does that process look now? Because I know a lot of people think like, how could I ever stop counting calories? I know the calorie yeah. of e- index of everything. Like, how can I stop doing that? What was the process yeah. for you?
1: Yeah, I, for me, it was like continually reinforcing food is just food. I can have it anytime. It's not a big deal. Like literally saying that phrase over and over and over and over and over and over and over over until I believed it, and and allowing myself to have things and challenging myself and being like, is this coming from a place of I should or shouldn't, or is this coming from? Something that I desire and want for myself, and so being able to acknowledge the should and shouldn'ts as being a manifestation of my diet brain, and starting to say no to that in order to really tap into what I really wanted and desired, and so it's it was a long process. I don't really get those thoughts anymore, but sometimes they'll pop up. You know, I'll just think to myself like, "Oh, I shouldn't eat that because I'm having this later" or something like that, and then I just kind of think, "Oh, hey, diet brain, okay, no, like." go away. You know, I, I mean, I know you. And so it's not, it's again, it's just kind of like a neutral reaction to it. It doesn't come emotionally charged with that fear or panic or indecisiveness that it used to. It now is just like, Oh, Hey, like, (laughs) I don't think I could ever forget that. I, I always say to people, we can't forget, but we can unlearn. I think, or I say something like that. We, we can't. We can't forget what we know, but we can unlearn. Like the way it's—it's it's kind of like learning a new language. You know, it's—you have to, to. You have to. You know, that other language that you knew before may still be programmed somewhere in your subconscious. But the more the time you spend speaking the new language the longer it becomes like your default way of thinking and it just takes it just takes time it would take the same amount of time to actually learn a new language i think but it, you have to actively start speaking it and behaving in that way in order to k- keep reinforcing it and everybody's journey is different for me, it it took probably a couple years to really get to a point where everything felt more neutral for some of my clients. It happens a lot quicker. So everybody's different. And I think it's it depends on your your experience, the work that you're putting into it, like whether you're being supported in that process or not as well.
0: And I think it's really important... That you highlighted the fact that like the, the thoughts don't necessarily go away and you, you know they start to lose power. But I think a lot of people in the beginning of the journey they think that it's kind of this all or nothing. Like I have to stop thinking these thoughts, or if these thoughts are there, that means that I'm still in it, or I'm I'm not going to be able to move forward towards this path that I'm looking to to be on. And so it is really about being able to have the uh, ability to kind of have it come, the awareness and observe the thoughts, but then like you said, just Nope, not gonna, not gonna like feed, feed off of you, you
1: know? Yeah, um, yeah. 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 When they pop up for me now, it's more like a surprise. I'm just like, what? Yeah, like, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, huh? <laughs> Say but what? It, it, I mean, it's normal. It was more, I've spent more of my life as a dieter than I have as a non-dieter. So it's a, a lot more like the vast majority. So it's normal to, to then have those things still pop up. So what do you think it is about
0: diets that are so alluring for people?
1: Well, I think it's the fantasy that we're sold. I mean, it's it's all tapping into this I, this magical thinking, you know, it it triggers that dopamine in our brain that everything in your life will be better. You know, you'll experience happiness all the time if you achieve this certain way of being. So I think that that's really part of it is that diet culture. If you look at the messages, they're all saying you're going to be happier. You're going to be more confident. You'll be more attractive. People will like you. You'll be popular. You'll have more money. All of these things are at your disposal if you achieve a certain standard of beauty. And on the giant layer on top of that is fat phobia and the size discrimination that exists in our culture. If there was no size discrimination, then you know, diet culture wouldn't have a lot of legs to stand on, because all bodies would be considered worthy of respect and equal treatment. But the unfortunate reality is that that's not the way our society operates. And, you know, to be in a larger body is to be considered one of the worst things that you can be. You know, I no longer believe that. But that's, I mean, that's what a lot of our society still thinks. And so it really instills this message that, you know, fat is bad, thin is good. And so dieting thrives on feeding into the fear of, you know, the fear of becoming larger, and the desire to want the privilege that's associated with being thinner. And so it's a whole industry is thriving off of that, though, like the diet industry makes billions of dollars off of feeding into this idea that you're, inferior and telling you that you're inferior and that in order to solve that problem, you need to change your body.
0: Yeah. The weight loss market is $209 billion a year. Isn't that crazy? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean like let's let's examine why because it doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's it's such an infor- an unfortunate thing because they put the onus on the individual so you feel like a failure and you feel like, "Oh, I did it wrong. Like I'm a failure." And what that does is every time you feel that way, that depletes your self-image, your self-esteem and self-worth even more. And so then you think the only way to fix it is to like buy back into it. So they've really set up this diabolical system (laughs) that feeds on insecurities, creates further insecurities, and then takes your money because they tell you that they can solve it. And to be able to step outside of that, takes a lot of courage because you're going against the grain and you're you're kind of operating in a segment of uh, like the minority segment of the population of non-dieters. Like a lot of people don't even know that not dieting is an option. That's the thing. I think it's just that diet culture is so normalized and I I say it's the most normalized drug. dieting is the most normalized drug in our culture because I think it gets people in like a drug. You become addicted to it. You become addicted to the kind of planning and execution, and it builds up like it fires up your dopamine. So it gets that excitement going within you, then you know, you're part of a community and you receive praise and you want more of that. And as soon as you get a fix of seeing your body change, like you want more. And so it really is, in a lot of ways, it parallels, you know, the the way that drugs suck people in and get people addicted. Except in our society, it's completely normalized. Yeah. and not seen as like an addiction or an issue. That's cool. I've never <laughs> compared those two, but yeah, totally.
0: Because like with addictions, you start to like, you know, you get the temporary relief, like ooh, the high, like this is all yes. going to be good. And then yes. you always kind of get the the coming down where you start to feel bad or just then you want some yeah. more of it. And then.
1: Yeah. yeah and just step outside that you're left with a bit of a void. Like when I'm, when people leave diet and culture, that's often doesn't feel very empowering. You almost feel, I think initially it kind of does, it almost feels like a bit of a void because it's taken away that excitement that you used to get from planning and controlling. And for a lot of people, it's their coping mechanism to turn to dieting because it's something that they think they can control and fixate on and divert and bypass emotional discomfort in their lives.
0: Yeah. So what did you do? What did you find you replaced that with?
1: actually feeling my emotions. (laughs) So I think kind of just settling into the fact that, you know, you're not going to live your life in a manic state. I think that that was sort of what I had been trying to achieve was like almost like living in like a manic state. And, you know, I, I struggled with drug abuse as well. And so it, to me, that's why I can see that parallel so closely mm-hmm. because you're kind of invested in this like idea of living in a state of like excitement and like a heart racing and adrenaline rush. And to realize that that's not how life is and to start to almost just settle into a little bit more of mediocrity which i know doesn't sound like exciting and enticing but really what you get ultimately is a sense of peace and so i didn't replace it with i mean i replaced it with being present in my life and i think being more connected to the people in my life, just being a more compassionate individual, like actually noticing things that were in front of me instead of always just living inside my head, planning and thinking and fixating on whether it was my body or food and to really get in touch with the things that truly make me feel alive, but also just settling into, I hesitate to use the word boredom, but it is like life is actually just, a little bit boring like yeah there's highs and lows and you know you do wonderful things and you feel a sense of fulfillment but you're not going to feel that every day like we need a balance and sometimes operating in that middle space is to just kind of settle into okay you know today is just a nice day, like nothing super exciting is happening, nothing super bad is happening. I'm just existing. But I think I was really trying to avoid that, that state of being. And I think a lot of it also came with just, I had an inability to feel feelings and to really get in touch with emotions for myself. You know, I had, I, put, I was put on antidepressants from a really young age and I had this very, I had a bad relationship with feeling emotions because I thought emotions were bad. And I was like, sadness, it needs to be avoided. Like if I'm sad, then I'm depressed and I'm never going to get out of it. And when I came off antidepressants, I think I never really learned how to just be more emotional and to know that like my emotions were okay. And so fixating on exercise and dieting was like a coping mechanism for me to avoid emotional discomfort and to know that like sadness is okay. And you know, just feeling more at ease is okay. I don't have to always be like positive, positive, positive. And I think that that's a. That, I see that a lot with the people I work with too. And, and just within the whole self-help world, this there's this expectation that every day is going to be rainbows and unicorns. And a lot of times life is just, it just is. And it's wonderful that way because it's just very freeing and it's peace of mind. But you have to learn to appreciate that and, and be more comfortable with that and not always be seeking kind of like a, this state of mania. I hope yeah. that makes sense.
0: No, totally. It's, it's like, yeah, this zone of equanimity or just kind of, the, yeah, I think that's a lot of times we fear it because it's like boring, you know, like I should be totally happy all the time and like everything should be great and um avoid any type of negative feelings. But it really is about letting them all have their space.
1: Yes, yes. And the positive ones feel more authentic and you feel them on a more deeper level when you are able to feel the wide range of emotions and you're not living within like a certain range, like only kind of feeling certain things and then leveraging coping mechanisms in order to feel more of certain things, mm-hmm. which is kind of what dieting was doing and exercise were doing for me. Like it was, you know, the exercise was always like a sense of euphoria. The dieting was like a sense of control. And it did, it did give me that sense of excitement and to kind of just walk away from that and be like, Oh, okay. Okay just being present, making dinner, watching TV, going to work, like these are all actually wonderful things that you can appreciate and have gratitude for. But you have to intentionally start to practice that and do that in your life.
0: Yeah, yeah, I always like to think like, with the practice of self compassion, like it's okay not to be okay. And I think that's something in our culture that maybe it's like, Oh, it's like, how are you doing today? Great. You know? And if you go, Oh, not so good. They're like, Oh, whoa. Like, what can I like, it's okay to not be okay. (laughs) It's okay to not feel good one day. It's okay to feel good another. So it's really is about just understanding that emotions ebb and flow and they come in waves.
1: Yes. Or people will say, I shouldn't feel this way, but you are always entitled to your feelings. So Mm. we, we try to deny them and, being able to acknowledge them and yeah accept them. That's what compassion is. Compassion isn't like changing it into a positive. It's about really accepting the struggle, accepting positive and negative. And I kind of use negative with quotation marks too, because I, I look at emotions as just all being neutral and just kind of different energies that go through our body. And it's more the stories that we've attached to them that give them the negative and positive connotations.
0: And I think the resistance too that can make them become more powerful or just like kind of get pent up and have a yeah, like oh, they don't move sure. through you as fast if you're just like ignoring it or resisting it. Yes. I think, yeah, for in my personal experience, like one of the biggest realizations that happened through the process of recovery was like that it's not about the food. Because it was so like about the food, right? It's like an eating disorder. It's like, it's like the name eating food. Like it's so implied that it's just about the food and your whole world revolves around the food. And that's, you know, a lot of times in the early stages, it's about meeting your meal plan. So it's very focused on the food. But when I developed the Rise Up app for people to log their thoughts and and meals and emotions and behaviors, initially started just as the check-in to look at your thoughts motions and actions. It wasn't to look at your food and then it's kind of a last minute edition I did the meal log, which ended up being a bigger component of or a more widely used feature of the app because I still think there is this like initial part that it is about the food in the beginning. But oh, then yeah, once for it's sure. like you really get to feel like wow it's actually not about the food. That's that's the tip of the iceberg. And really yeah. there's so much more that you have to get down into the root to really yeah find that that change that peace that that state of being that you are really looking for
1: yeah i mean you need to be eating enough in order to facilitate the mental transition as well like so i mean if you're depriving yourself of nutrients or calories then your mental state is not going to be in a place to really be able to make a lot of the other changes. Like, so you can't put the cart in front of the horse. Like you do have to, you do have to, what I always say is like, you have to eat like a grown ass woman, which, cause I think a lot of times we just don't even know. And especially as women, we think we're supposed to eat like birds and we're not. <laughs> and I think even like, if you're in like a health and nutrition scene and you're seeing what food bloggers post their meals, like, I eat way more than all, than all those people. So I, you know, to me, like it was, it's really distorted to, to have that as kind of like your guideline or to think like, Oh, I should just eat this much. It's like, no, we're all different. And a lot of us, including myself, need a lot more of that to just function. Yeah. I don't know if people are just like taking food off their plate before they take a picture or if they really do (laughs) eat like that. Either way, I don't really care. But I know for me, I eat a lot more (laughs) and I own it now. It's not, it's no longer a source of shame. It's just, this is what I eat.
0: (laughs) And did you ever have spells where you'd overeat because you were kind of keeping such a rigid
1: diet? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I, I vacillated. Basically, I was like a Monday to Thursday dieter, like for <laughs> for 20 years. That's how I operated. And then like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I would eat three times the, the amount. And that was that was actually the source of like all the shame and struggle in my mind. Because I was like, why can't I? Like I never had a I never had like a, a full blown eating disorder. I was just like a chronic dieter that was pretty unsuccessful, because I can only keep my stuff together for like four days in a row before Uh, my body would just say like, no, we need the food. And so I vacillated between that kind of restriction and binging for, for years. And so, yeah, it took me a while to really get to a point where everything just kind of felt normal. And I wasn't in that state because that had been... That had been my mode of operation since I was a young child, because that was kind of how I was raised. It was like, okay, we're eating this. And then, oh, you can have that on the weekend. And you can have as much as you want want of it. And then it's going away. And then we're eating this. And so, you know, from a very innocent perspective, my mom wasn't like trying to control my weight. She just was a chronic dieter as well. And that was how she thought she was raising healthy kids. And, you know, it's not her fault. It's not like she was trying to damage me, but it created this really weird relationship with food. And, I, and so, yeah, I went that way for years. And then when I started to give myself more allowance with like when I stopped dieting and was giving myself more allowance, I mean, I was absolutely eating and feeling more physical discomfort than I do now because the restrictive mindset was still there. Like there was still that famine mentality and that scarcity mindset of this is good, not going to be here again. Um, mm-hmm. And I had to just keep, you know, eating the food and just forgiving myself and just moving on with my life in order to get to a point where for the most part that normalized, although I still eat to physical discomfort sometimes, but it's, it's just not like it, it's not like it was at all.
0: Yeah. It really is about that permission. I think you said earlier, like, I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want, or like, I, yeah. I can have this again.
1: Yeah, this isn't like, the I last
0: time tomorrow. I'm going to have a cookie.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah. And it had to be like, okay, if I want this on a Tuesday, it's okay. Because forever it had been like, no, I can't have this till Friday um, or Saturday. And so it was, it was like, have it on a Tuesday. It's okay. <laughs> and, all, and then eventually, you know, you, your, your body starts to trust You again, and you start to trust your body.
0: Yeah, it's really about rebuilding that trust.
1: Yeah how uh, how has your
0: relationship with your husband improved since you stopped dieting so much and being so obsessed around food and body?
1: Well, I think that I'm a lot more confident, like walking around without clothes in front of him, and I'm sure he's pretty happy to not hear me fretting about it. And I know he's pumped to have like pasta and bread in the house again. (laughs) he, we, um, so it's improved (laughs) in little ways. I just feel like I'm a lot more present with him. I mean, he's, he's just an amazing guy. He's always just supported me with whatever I need and whatever I'm thinking and going through. And, you know, he's, he's really easygoing. So, he he's always just kind of adapted to whatever phase I'm in <laughs> and been very compassionate and supportive. So I think but I think for me, like I just I experience time with him on a deeper, more connected level because I'm actually there and I'm not inside my head and I don't prioritize working out over Sex, which is what I did for a while. Like, I would be too tired to be intimate because, you know, I had to get to the gym, uh, you know, or we could only go to certain restaurants or, you know, have certain foods in the house. And although he was like really cool with all of that and he never complained, I know he definitely appreciates like the fact that. It, we just live now. And it's just not even, it's not a question. It's not a concern. And yeah, I think, I think probably one of the bigger things that he maybe appreciates is just the confidence in myself and my body and that, you know, like I got some boudoir pictures done, like I have two of them blown up on our bedroom wall, you know, just stuff that I never ever would have done before. I think. um he he appreciates that I, and and I, I don't know if he appreciates my confidence more or if it is indeed just like the fact that you know my body is a little curvier than it than it was before but yeah he seems to love my body more now which I think might just be because I do as well um more so than the physical change that's gone through but I think it's just we both have a greater appreciation for that <laughs>
0: That's beautiful. Yeah, but I, I think I think there's this misconception, though. I mean, the media has really controlled what is beauty, and I think yes. a lot of. So I've lived actually out of the country a lot, many years, and um, you know, a lot of Latin American countries, and they have their billboards are like super curvy women, and it's just so different in like their advertisements. And I, I did notice there is like a trend now; they're going a little more toward like the Western ideal, but. It's still like the culture, like we don't, who's to say that all guys want a stick thin Kate Moss type of woman. They don't actually, like when you talk to men, they, they like women who have curves Who I mean, there's a body for everybody. Like everybody loves different types of bodies. And so I think it's important to realize that if you're trying to like be a certain body type that you're really not genetically like meant to have that just own your body because there's going to be some, out there who's just gonna love that type of body.
1: Well, and someone's gonna love you unconditionally. Like you wanna really ask yourself, what do I value in a relationship? Because the reality is we're all gonna get old, we're all gonna get saggy, we're all gonna end up looking a lot different than we do right now. You know, <laughs> you don't see a lot of older older women or men with any kind of body that looks like a culturally accepted ideal, right? Yeah. So I think we have to also just, you know, really look at what we want out of a relationship and that it's so much more than the actual like initial physical attraction. And I'm so lucky to have found someone that I think, you know, I know he loves me unconditionally. Like if something happened to me, God forbid, and like my body was disfigured, I know he would love me just the same. And I think that there's a lot of people out there like that, you just have to find them and, and say no to anyone who wants you because your body looks a certain way, because you, they're not going to be there for the long haul. Yeah. You got to have someone who loves you just, you know, for who, for your thought, who sees you beyond just an, as an, op, beyond being an object, a I body. think that's the biggest thing, right? Like see yourself beyond an object and then and have somebody else who, who loves you beyond being an object as well. I think that's, that's ultimately the the biggest message that I send to, to women, because you don't want to shrink yourself to then find, to find a relationship because you're going to find a guy who, or a woman, I should say a partner who, who is only appreciates you conditionally. And that's, that's, you don't want that. You know, I hope you don't want that. I I mean, I, I really hope people don't want that.
0: No, I'm so happy you went there because actually I kind of ended on that <laughs> point.
1: Like, oh, you know, body, body is so, famous. no,
0: no, no. That's, I'm just really happy you brought that up and like, because it's, it's so much more about the person, the values, the personality, yeah. like who you are in the inside. And that sounds, you know, so cliche. It's like what's in the inside that counts, but damn well, that is really what counts. That's what's in the yeah. inside. If you're going to be with someone who only cares about your exterior. Yeah. That changes and it's just not a worthwhile investment in your time or love and energy.
1: Yeah, exactly. Go out and change the world.
0: Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today, Summer.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: How can all the recovery warriors stay in touch with you?
1: So my website is summerinand.com or uh, you can just go to thebodyimagecoach.com and that will redirect you to my site. I have the podcast. I have a book, which is called Body Image Remix, uh, which is available through all that you can find on my, on my website, as well as like, my, my group programs and how to work privately with me as well.
0: Thank you, Summer. Now let's go over three key takeaways from this conversation to help you recover strong. Key takeaway number one, all foods are neutral. Now diet culture tells us that certain foods are good or bad, and this can be amplified to a debilitating and destructive magnitude when you're suffering from an eating disorder. You may even become afraid of certain foods and try to avoid them altogether. Summer explained how learning to neutralize food helped her break free.
1: I just started to really see how toxic my relationship with food had been because I was so afraid of certain foods. And I had just bought into this idea that things were morally good and bad, and it had just instilled this fear of of weight gain in me. And so to get out of that, I had to really challenge myself and just start eating things again and bring things back into my life. And uh, I slowly did that. And now I, you know, I say to people, I I eat whatever I want and it's totally true. So, you know, I, of course I still eat a lot of things like vegetables and fruits and not that that's an obligation or that that makes me a better person. It's just, that I genuinely do like those things. It's just no longer an obsession. Foods are no longer connected to like whether or not they're going to make me smaller and And yeah, it's just a sense of of freedom.
0: Food is truly just food. There is no moral value assigned to it. Now, practicing this mindset is the key to recovery and freeing yourself from food obsessions. You're not a bad person for eating certain foods or eating a certain way. You're not a good person for those things either. All foods are neutral and what you consume says nothing about your worth. So that is key takeaway number one all foods are neutral key takeaway number two we can't forget but we can unlearn it's important to understand that in recovery the eating disorder thoughts won't entirely go away now that may sound discouraging because you're like what i don't want them in my head anymore but don't worry things can still get better way better and while the thoughts may still be there, recovery is about changing your response to those thoughts and embracing more helpful ones instead. Then, over time, the eating disorder thoughts get quieter and they pop up less and less. Eventually, your recovered brain takes over and this is the mindset that guides your behaviors and feelings. Some are compared this process to learning a new language.
1: I always say to people... We can't forget, but we can unlearn. It's, it's kind of like learning a new language. That other language that you knew before may still be programmed somewhere in your subconscious, but the more the time you spend speaking the new language, the longer it becomes like your default way of thinking. And it just takes, it just takes time. It would take the same amount of time to actually learn a new language, I think, but it, you have to actively start speaking it and behaving in that way in order to k- keep reinforcing it.
0: Your eating disorder didn't develop overnight and it won't go away overnight either. Embrace learning the language of recovery and remember that everyone has a different journey and timeline. As long as you continue taking it one step at a time, those steps will add up to huge changes. Remember to pause and look back at how far you've come. Even if you've only taken one small step towards recovery so far, that is monumental and worth celebrating. Keep going. That was key takeaway number two, we can't forget, but we can unlearn. And finally, key takeaway number three, recognize the parallels between dieting and addiction. Summer revealed in our conversation that not only has she struggled with food, but with substance abuse too. Now this gives her a keen eye to recognize the parallels between addiction and dieting, which can be hard for the average person to see because of how accepted dieting is in our society.
1: Dieting is the most normalized drug in our culture because I think it gets people in like a drug. You become addicted to it. You become addicted to the kind of planning and execution, and it builds up like it fires up your dopamine. So it gets that excitement going within you. Then, you know, you're part of a community and you receive praise and you want more of that. And as soon as you get a fix of seeing your body change, like you want more. And so it really is, in a lot of ways, it parallels. You know, the, the way that drugs suck people in and get people addicted, except in our society, it's completely normalized, not seen as like an addiction or an issue.
0: The diet industry is estimated to be worth over 200 billion dollars. That is a lot of money preying on our insecurities. And as Summer said earlier, the reason for this is because it doesn't work. Remember that dieting is counting on you to fail. Reject diet culture and empower yourself with recovery focused practices instead. And begin to see beyond the illusion of the dieting and how, like other addictions, it puts you on a roller coaster ride of highs and lows. And so you can see it for what it is. Recognize the parallels between dieting and addiction. So these are our three key takeaways from this conversation with Summer In and In.